Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then and you're re- Enacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? Oh yeah. You know, that's always the question is are you are you wanting to change? And then the second much more important question is are you ready to do what it takes? And my promise to you is that if you want to shed yourself of this addiction and learn how to manage your life, manage your addiction, manage your wife, manage your husband, you can do that because it's it's actually very customized to you, but it's also very formulaic. I mean, I promise you, as does the program, when you work it, it works. So if you're listening to the show for the first time, I want to I want to reassure you this is manageable. Urges and cravings get better. Substituting new behaviors for the old will make you feel healthy, will bring about good self-esteem, and will take you and your life to the next level. That is what I promised. But obviously, what is so important is that you decide what does it take to make your life different and boy that is the million dollar question so you know are you working hard are you working hard to be able to absolutely change your life and it is it is very difficult to know what you need to do I know that for a fact And what I believe to be true is that when you work at least eight out of ten of the recovery tools, you are so much further along 
because you know that what you're doing is working well. All right, so let me just ask you something here. Are you ready to change? Pivotal question. You know, you may be in what we call the contemplative stages of are you ready to change? And hopefully that is so important to be able to know that you are ready to change because if you're not yet, then I guarantee you, you are going to be unsuccessful. You've got to have that determination. You got to. And so if you're kind of waffling, if you're thinking, well, I want to change this, but I don't want to change that, can't I please stop looking at going to prostitutes, but can I, can I still, still look at pornography? I mean, I actually have guys that say, can I look at pornography if I don't masturbate? I mean, I don't think that's a problem if I don't masturbate. Well, yes, it is. Because what we know to be true is that you are not going to be able to light up that reward center with sexual images, sexual thoughts, sexual fantasies, and still lead a clean life. That will open up the gateway. And we don't want you to open up the gateway, for goodness sakes. We want you to lead a clean life. We want you to look at your fellowship, look at your sponsor, look at your husband or your wife, and with integrity know that you're doing the next right thing. And, boy, that does get difficult. There is no doubt about it. If you're dabbling in um, what we might call middle circle behaviors, you know, we know that they oftentimes lead to inner circle behaviors, which are the deal-breaking behaviors, then you're using a sense of denial. You're saying to yourself, oh, this is fine and this isn't going to hurt me. And the reason we call those middle circle behaviors is because those behaviors you're supposed to stay away from at any cost because they are the gateway to inner circle behaviors. And I promise you, that is not going to work out for you. It just isn't. You might ask, well, why not? You see, when the reward center is lit up, it does not know the difference between a full-fledged um, pornography, web chat, uh, appointment with a prostitute. It doesn't know the difference. And so what ends up happening is that you have lit up that reward center and the brain wants more. And that isn't going to work. Because if the brain wants more, the brain's going to figure out all sorts of ways to get more. And so why do that to yourself? Why make it so tough? You know, why 
put yourself in a situation where you have to fight yourself for the next right moment. That's why anybody in good, strong recovery knows stay away from those middle circle behaviors. They're just as toxic as inner circle behaviors. And I know you know that. I know deep down inside you do. So it's breaking that denial, which, of course, is the first recovery task that we work on if we look at Patrick Karn's 30 recovery tasks. When you look at those 30 recovery tasks, the first seven are just so simplistic, and yet they're fundamental. I mean, the first one is breaking denial. And you break denial when when you really get honest about what is going on in your life, about behaviors that you're participating in that aren't good. And wow, that's getting honest with yourself. And, you know, denial stands for don't even know I'm lying. An addict lies to himself and to everybody else. You know, I had somebody who um, has recently relapsed, and he looked at me, and he had the nerve to say, you didn't ask me if I was looking at porn. Now, every time I saw him, I said, hey, how are your urges and cravings? And he said, fine. And he was doing really well, or so I thought. In actuality, he had done really well. And then... He fell off the wagon, and I know, like every recovering addict, he thought, I'll get back on track. But what we know to be true is that that just doesn't happen. When you get off track and you continue to lie to people, you don't get back on track because addiction is about lying. So eventually, when he got caught and had to come clean and talk with me and talk to his fellowship, and he had actually already confessed this to his sponsor and his sponsor was helping him to get back on track. But see, if you're just telling one or two people and you're not being honest about what you're doing with your loved ones, with your counselor, it's going to take longer. There's just no doubt about it. That is the equation. And so I think he gets it now. I hope so. He's a good guy. I want him to get back on track. And I want you to get honest with yourself. What behaviors do you need to stop? What behaviors are slippery slopes? What behaviors are middle circle that are going to take you into that inner circle? You better have done those three circles. And if you don't know what they are, they're in your green book. Or you can Google it. Or you can go to Sex Help with Carol the Coach on YouTube. And I have specifically a 10-minute tutorial on what the three circles are. So you got lots of um, opportunities to get that right, and I do want you to get it right because if you don't get it right, you'll get your recovery program wrong. We don't want you to do that. Now, tonight I'm actually going to be interviewing Anna Osborne, who's an LMFT, and she works with couples and individuals healing from trauma to their relationship. And this kind of trauma can be anything from infidelity, betrayal, loss, Um, sexual addiction. She really believes that healing trust after a trauma requires that both partners 
heal individually and collectively in order for the relationship to thrive in the future. So what do you have to do? You have to grieve the loss of the old relationship, make peace with the past, and create a new path to each other. So tonight, Anna will take us through the process of healing trust in order to create a safer and healed relationship. And she's going to provide some concrete steps to the action that you will need to take to heal, whether you're a sex addict or a partner. So I look forward to this. Um, She's somebody that I um, think a lot of, and I said, hey, we need to get you on the show. So luckily we're going to be working with her here in just a couple of minutes. And we're all about you know, healing from the betrayal and loss. You've heard me say it before in my APSAT training. Um, I'm a, you know, a clinical certified partner specialist. We know that there are three stages to partner trauma, and they are the first, that they need to be able to feel safe and secure, and they need to be able to stabilize and as an addict in recovery you can help them to do that I can help them to do that and they can help themselves to do that that's the good news but it takes quite a bit of time it takes quite a bit of work and it takes incorporating new skills then that second stage which I know Anna is going to be talking about is that when one wants to heal individually, they have to grieve the loss. And the second stage is called loss and mourning. You know, you have to mourn what you had or what you thought you had, and you have to mourn what you wanted in a relationship. We all enter into relationships with preconceived notions, and we have every right to do that. And then in healthy relationships, what we find is that, wow, our our expectations are not necessarily normal. You know, I remember saying to my husband, hey, honey, I want us to be joined at the hip. I, You know, I want us to do everything together. I want us to really be close. You know, it says in our vows that we're extensions of each other. And he looked at me very honestly. My husband minces no words. And he said, yeah, Carol, that's only if we're going your way. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, and he was right, you know what? You want me to watch Oprah with you, but you don't want to wash the car with me. Yeah, I thought I don't. And he said, you know, you want me to take long walks with you, but you don't necessarily want to go to the grocery store with me. You see, he goes to the grocery store for us, and I hate going to the grocery store. And I said, yeah, you're right. And he said, so that expectation of me being uh, attached at your hip, it just isn't going to work. And then he looked at me and he said one more offensive thing that was absolutely true. And when I realized it was true, which only took me seconds, I said to myself, okay, this guy, he knows what he's talking about. He said, you know, it sounds like you want a husband who at times is your girlfriend. And he goes, I'm not your girlfriend. We're not going to like the same things all the time, and you're just going to have to learn how to live with that. Well, the good news is I do have plenty of girlfriends, so I don't need my husband to meet all my needs. 
And in healthy relationships, you figure that out. But where there's been betrayal and loss, you don't know what is up and what is down, what is right and what is wrong, and it shakes your whole world. So Anna Osborne is going to be talking to us about how to heal, both collectively and individually, so that you can begin to build that trust and love your spouse for who they are and what they have to bring into the relationship that will make you feel safe and stable. So, Anna, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Thank you so much, Carol. It's great to be on the show and to get to connect. Well, absolutely. In in so many ways, you are a trauma specialist. So can you tell us a little bit, because I've been talking to my listening audience and I've told them what your perspective is, can you tell us how you got involved with this work? Yeah, I really got involved in working with trauma survivors actually back, you know, 14 years ago when I was in grad school working with domestic violence and sexual assault survivors. That's where I really started working with trauma. And eventually that morphed into working with couples in my private practice and really being able to, you know, take that trauma roots that I had from my early clinical experience and really apply it to the traumas that I see occur within partnerships. Okay, so it all started out clinically, and I consider this to be some of the hardest work in the world to do, both for addicts and for partners. So you had a propensity to do this kind of work, and what did you find when you first started working with the couple? You know, what I found was that not only is it extremely hard work, it's also extremely rewarding to be able to see a couple go from one of the most devastating experiences that they've shared both collectively and independently and move to a place of healing to be able to create safety again, to be able to create trust again. It is, um, I'm constantly in awe of the power that we have within ourselves and within our partnerships to heal. And being able to be on the front lines doing this work is just a, a continual reminder to the power of the human spirit. Okay, so it was that um, ability to see change and to see people grow from it that kept you going in this very difficult work. Now, can I ask you? Certainly. Yeah, I was going to say, because trauma leaves all sorts of imprints, and, you know, uh, Bessel van der Kolk said it so beautifully that the body does keep score of trauma. So it's not something that just happens to you psychically. Obviously, it happens to you um, throughout your whole body, and you hold on to that cellularly. Can you explain to our listening audience what trauma is? Yeah, it really is that experience of both mind, of all mind, body, and spirit. It's really that, you know, event that turns everything upside down. What we used to know to be true is no longer. It's essentially an eviction from our lives, right? What we used to think we knew about our relationship and our partner really leaves us scrambling for footing again. And it isn't just, you know, our, our heart that is broken. It is also our, our body and mind that can feel so shattered. And so trauma really is that 
complete uh, reordering of what we thought we knew to be safe and real. Um, and when that happens in a relationship, the, the, the damage can be very, very extensive. Yeah, absolutely. And so, obviously, trauma is about people not being honest and being triggered and um, obviously being being unfaithful to the other person. So tell me a little bit about what you tell addicts in order to manage their triggers when it comes to slipping or relapsing, and what do you tell partners to be able to manage their triggers from the betrayal? Well, I think the most important important part is really normalizing that triggers are an ongoing part of the healing process. And although they are normal, they're completely destabilizing, right? Because when trauma happens in a relationship, we're looking for anything to hold on to. And when those triggers come, they really rattle the cage. And so what we want to do is really not only normalize them, but also, you know, kind of have this appreciation that they are a reminder of the injury. And so they create a huge spike in fear and adrenaline. And our bodies, um, you know, they, they have that fight, flight, or freeze mentality when we have that huge hormonal response to a trigger. And so being able to really work with not only the addict but the partner of how do you ground when a trigger happens, right? Because a trigger is sending us so far into the past, but it's also sending us so far forward into the future. We have left the present. We're not in the here and now when a trigger is happening. We have left our bodies and we've gone into complete fear. And so being able to really help them go back into their bodies um, to be able to stop the spinning and either the, the past pain or the projection into the future is really, really important. And so for me, I use a lot of body awareness for, for grounding when I'm working with folks on their triggers, which I can you know, share more about if that would be helpful. Oh, that sure would. I know people, especially partners, want to know what can they do to ground themselves and feel safer since that, that is that first stage to um, recovery if you're a partner that loves a sex addict. Yes, you're right. You're at, you're at ground zero when those triggers are coming in and fast and fierce. And so what we know about triggers is, like I said, you leave your body when you're triggered. You're in a heightened emotional state where nothing feels safe. So we want to get you right back into your body and into the present, into the here and now. And so the easiest way to do that is to create a sensory experience, right, because our bodies are these great sensing beings. And so we want to use our senses that our body naturally has to ground us back in the present. I personally feel that touch, taste, and smell are the most fast acting when it comes to grounding because it's the physical sensation we're having. And so whether or not it's holding an ice cube on our wrists or, you know, kind of below our earlobes on our neck, um, chewing a few Altoids, those, the original kind in the red box that are, you know, that sharp sensory experience, or being able to smell essential salts or essential oils like cinnamon or peppermint, something that gives you a very sharp sensory experience is going to bring you back into your body. And once you're grounded and that trigger is passed, you actually can better evaluate because the part of your brain, that prefrontal cortex, that is really in charge of the decision-making and higher-order thinking is now re-engaged 
so you can actually check your surroundings for safety because you now are clear-headed when you aren't in that place when you're triggered. So we really have to slow things down in order to really reevaluate accurately for safety um, versus what that sensory trigger was telling us was happening. Oh, that makes so much sense, and that is so basic. But, again, it takes you out of that amygdala area of the brain where you're thinking, do I run, do I fight, do I just freeze? And and it takes you back to the very present day experience of what are you tasting, what are you smelling, what are you seeing, what are you hearing? And that in itself can be very stabilizing. Um So then what would you tell an addict who is in the midst of a trigger and hasn't acted out yet and at the same time has a split second to make the decision, do I or don't I? Yeah, is to be able to, the same thing that I would tell a partner that is, you know, the partner that's loving the addict is use your grounding skills, get back into the here and now, be able to be aware of what's going in your body and listen to those pain points so that you can reach out for support because there is that split second, right, between when the trigger happens and at the beginning it is a split second. And over time as you're getting into grounding and really working your healing process, you're actually able to extend that to where it isn't as instantaneous as it was in the moment that you start to get two seconds right, of from when that trigger happens to when it can then, you know, lead to the acting out. And so we want to really use these body awareness skills as a way to lengthen that time. And what I tell folks, too, is practice these skills when you're not triggered, right? Like you just said, the amygdala is firing. There is no wonderful cause and effect long-term thinking happening in that moment. And so we can't expect our bodies and our minds to be doing something that in that moment the functioning isn't happening around. So practice the grounding skills when you're not triggered so that they become this automatic response when you move to a triggered place to be able to fall back on those, um, on those tools. So what might be a normal experience for an addict or a partner so that they can practice it before they get triggered from sexual addiction? In terms of what would they be practicing of what was grounding skills? Yeah, you said, hey, do this, do this in a regular situation so that you get the practice you need. So what would be some regular situations we all would be dealing with where we could practice that grounding life skill? Yes, absolutely. Right, because we want to practice when life is at a three or a four, not a nine or a ten. Right? You know, we want to practice it when we're just managing these day-to-day stressors, which are not our, our flashpoint, our point where we are going to be so triggered that we're outside of our body. And so if it is a normal, you know, dropping the kids off at school is a stress point or, you know, kind of winding down at the end of the evening, you've got a lot of stress around what the next day will hold, but it's a mild stressor compared to the bigger stressors, practice them there taking the dog out for a walk, these things that may be more soothing in sense, but practice them when you're, when you're in that state of a three or a four. It's, it's more harmful when people say, you know what, I'll practice it when I'm at an eight because then I really know I need it. But by that point, your brain isn't working with you. It's working against you. It's exactly what you just said. It's in fight, flight, or freeze. 
And so we want to really practice it in things that are mild stressors, which are really individual to each of us, but I think there's common ones. Um, like I said, you know, kind of getting the kids ready in the morning for school, managing drop-off, walking into a meeting with your boss that's an unknown, having a, uh, a mildly difficult conversation with your partner. Use those grounding skills before you go in so that you're much more present in the moment and the triggers don't come as fast and as fierce. Yeah, good point. Okay, so now I'm wondering why do you think healing is required for both partners as well as the relationship. I mean, certainly for a a partner, she would say, I'm the one that's healing, not him. Mm -hmm. I'm the one who's triggered, not him. So why do you think that both people need to heal? Well, because both people are parts of that relationship, right? They are the pieces that make up that relationship. And when there has been trauma and betrayal, especially around sex addiction to a relationship, we need to be very mindful that both partners have a path in that healing journey. I know in my experience, oftentimes the the addict partner or the injuring partner will really hold back their experience of pain and hurt because they don't feel they have a right to the healing. The, the mindset is that I caused it so I don't get to say I'm hurt too. And although that's a common mindset that I see with the injuring partner, it's one that leaves partners further disconnected, right? Because both partners must heal in order to overcome the trauma that's occurred within the relationship because quite honestly, they've both been impacted by it and they both need a form for that healing to occur within the relationship. I believe that there is a a time and a space for both partners to have a voice in that healing, Um, but their pain is both significant and different to me, although their, their pain is different, it doesn't mean that one is better or worse than the others. They're both significant. And so knowing that they both um, need that path to heal is a part of success in, in healing the relationship. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I know that so oftentimes both for the addict or the injuring and the partner or the injured, it it can be, it's so difficult because there is so much shame in what has happened, shame for the addict that he or she has caused this kind of pain, and also for the partner that their life was not what they thought it was going to be. So I'm kind of curious what role do you think shame plays in healing? Yeah, shame is a really, really tough one because when it comes to healing, we can get really lost in that shame and, and have that experience to feel like we're drowning, right? Because shame, you know, guilt is I did something wrong. Shame is I am wrong. And when one or both partners are stuck in shame, it's really difficult for them to reach each other. Right? We have to be really aware of shaming messages that have been internalized for us and also aware of the shaming messages that our partner is holding um, so that we can really bring them to the surface while also not deepening them, right? Because shame is a distancer. Um, it is hard to reach your partner when um, they are stuck in their shame message that I am the problem I'll always be damaged. I'm unlovable. We want to externalize that shame to the point of being able to have it be something that's healed. Um, Otherwise, it really remains that wall in between the couple when shame is actively playing a role and, and working against the couple healing. 
Oh, absolutely. So then how is grief work involved in healing trust? You know, it's so interesting when I talk about grief work in, in the couples that I work with. At first they look at me and think, well, why are we doing grief work? You know, we're here for, we're here for the betrayal. We're here for the, the, the sex addiction or the infidelity. But grief work, grief and loss work is a huge part of the healing process because you have to really mourn what you had before the trust was broken, right? That relationship that you had before um, has to be mourned because, in essence, that relationship has been lost, right? That, that relationship has burned to the ground. And in order to step into your new normal without resentment of how it should have been or how it could have been, you really have to be mindful of grieving and mourning the losses of those aspects of the relationship, And, you know, grief work is really letting go of what we envisioned it was going to be and being Mm -hmm. able to move into the opportunity within this new normal, which really is a new relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And I was saying before you came on that, you know, for a couple and certainly for the partner, you want to create as much safety and stabilization as you can, and then you go into the grief Uh, and mourning stage. And so what might be some exercises that you would use for a couple who is in that second stage? Well, I think that part of it is being able to really talk about what has been lost, right? Because in order Mm -hmm. to really be honest about what was lost, it gives us an opportunity to also move into what we still know to be true and or, right, depending on the circumstance, what we need to be true. What are the rules that this relationship is governing on moving forward? And, and how will that look in terms of um, disclosures and communication and transparency? And so it starts really simply by talking about what has been lost. And, you know, one forgiveness was once described to me as letting go of the hope that the past could have been any different. And I believe that that is part of the grief and loss work. It's saying that we were these two people in this relationship, and though that happened, right, that, that betrayal happened, that disclosure, mm-hmm. that discovery happened, and we can't change that. And so mourning the loss of what we thought it should have been like is part of being able to move into this, this new chapter of what it will look like now and how we can still be okay even if it doesn't look like how we thought it was going to. And that is that, that process of bringing those losses to the surface. And um, another piece of that, too, is not having it become off topic. I think that when there is a loss that happens, whether it's you know, through betrayal and, and addiction or in other aspects of our life, we get to a place where people don't really want to hear about it, right? They, they, they are uncomfortable with us talking about our loss. And so in our relationship, when triggers happen, we need to be able to bring those to our partner and talk about them in a way that they're empathized and validated rather than pushed away and told, well, that's been resolved. We don't talk about that anymore. And the more that it's okay to talk about, we actually have less of a need to talk about it because we know that whenever we need to, we can. And so the need doesn't come up as frequent or as intensely as we move through that healing process. Oh, that's a very good point. I absolutely agree with you. Now, clearly, when we're working with couples, you want to create trust. And you just mentioned that 
being vulnerable and talking about what has been lost and how what feelings are evoked about that loss, wouldn't you agree that that helps to begin that process of trust? Yeah, saying I can show up vulnerably and share with you what I'm so saddened by or I'm so scared by, and you don't run away. You let me have those feelings, and it has a soft landing, right? It isn't rejected or discounted. It's not told to be different than it is, but that really allows us to start experiencing, maybe I can trust again. I can show you these vulnerable, broken parts of me, and you're still here with me, and that that in and of itself can be very, very healing. Yeah, and I can see where that really applies to both the sex addict who has created the pain and also for, obviously, the partner who recognizes that their whole life was turned upside down and now she either has the opportunity to push the second part of the coupleship away or she can talk about how hurt she is without attacking, without... Mm -hmm. You know, anger is a good thing, but so many partners, understandably, are in that fight stage. They can't believe what has been done to them, and so they retaliate and they're vindictive because they want the other person to hurt as badly as they've hurt. And moving them into that place of vulnerability and honesty without that vindictiveness really shows the next step in their own growth. Certainly, certainly. And I think that, you know, underneath that anger is just such extreme hurt. And so a lot of times when the the injured partner moves into that place of, like you said, that, that attacking or lashing out or vindictiveness, they may not even be acutely aware of the fact that it's deep, deep sadness and fear that's triggering it. They can feel very justified in their anger. And so being able to really help support somebody slow down enough to just even entertain the idea that underneath that anger there's a lot more pain um, and then making making it safe enough for them to actually access it and if possible allow their partner to see it too we can really start to dissect and understand this process of healing a lot more when that anger starts to dissipate and we get to much more of those core feelings which like you said are much more the vulnerable um, the raw ones the scary ones Well, and you just said it beautifully when you said that, you know, one of the ways for them to feel the safety of vulnerability is to get them to slow down. Because when they Mm -hmm. slow down, they don't have to fight as hard. They can actually feel. And when they feel in a safe environment, in a therapy session, then they typically do express vulnerability. And, you know, you and I both know that vulnerability on the addict's part or the partner's part is the number one way to develop intimacy, which then builds trust. Certainly, yeah. And and being able to create that container within the office of this is the safe place where we can create vulnerability and maintain it. And then we can shore it up before you go back out into the real world because initially it will feel way too scary and exposed to be out in the real world holding that vulnerability, right? We've got to ease into that process of of allowing the couple um, to take what they're doing in the room 
to their own homes and being able to have that experience of vulnerability and softness without um, the therapeutic container, right, of, of eventually kind of handing that very fragile egg back to them um, so that they can really do that on their own. And that is that process in and of itself is just amazing when couples come in and they share about these vulnerable, intimate moments they were able to share with one another outside your office and just the the hope that it really fills the room of, of letting them see that they can do this outside of the office too and that that is part of their healing journey. Oh, absolutely. And so, you know, obviously doing that grief work really does build trust as long as there's a safe container for everybody to talk about that. Now, I love that you said earlier that people need to make peace with the past. I mean, you were talking about something that I really agree with, and that is that if someone gets stuck in their past, they can't be in the present. And if they're worried about the future, they can't stay in the present. So how do you help couples to make peace with their past? I think, you know, for me when I'm working with couples is being able to move away from some of these adages, which, again, just me personally, the something good will come of this, all things happen for a reason. Those don't tend to, doing a lot of trauma work, I I have a hard time getting behind those. Um, And so oftentimes when I'm talking with couples and they hear this idea of making peace with the past, they then feel like there's this implication of, so I have to say that this you know, that this is the best thing that's happened to us. And so really defining, no, that's not what it means, is that really making peace with the past is being able to saying we don't have to celebrate this or saying, you know, we've got to find something good from this. But we need to acknowledge that it has forever changed us, and yet we can still be okay. And making peace with the past is not hanging on to the hope that the past could have been any different than it was, even if we really believed it should have been. Because like you just said a moment ago, the truth is the past has occurred and it can't be undone. So making peace that it's part of our story is a necessary part of that healing process, right? Our past is part of our story, but it's not our headline and it's not what defines us in the future. And so that's really what I mean when I'm talking with folks about making peace with the past. Okay, so in other words, it does not define our future. And if you combine that with your definition of forgiveness, and one more time, will you remind our audience, you love the definition of forgiveness, which is? Letting go of the hope that the past could have been any different. Uh-huh. And, and certainly, what I love, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, and certainly, You know, that is so descript. That is exactly where people feel uh, the most um, angst as well as um, hope because they go, yeah, that isn't where we were at, and yet it gives us a place to go. So what were you going to say? Yeah, that's what I really do feel. I agree with what we we were thinking the same thing, right? It's that differentiation because – we have letting go of the hope that the past could have been any different is this acknowledgement that we were those people and now we've gone through the fire, right? We've gone through this and now we're these people. And so the past couldn't have been any different because we weren't 
those people that we are now. We've evolved into this new partnership. We've evolved into this healing place. And so being able to offer forgiveness is saying, I'm not holding on to what the past should have been. I'm not holding on to the hope that it could have been different than it was. I'm letting go of the hope that it could be different. And really that is this transition to I'm offering the hope to who we are now because that is in the present. That is something that we have much more control over because the past cannot be changed. Exactly. And obviously you have so much expertise with betrayal and with infidelity and, and, um, you're a licensed marriage and family therapist. And if people wanted to get a hold of you, Anna, I am talking with Anna Osborne, how might they be able to do that? Yeah, there's a couple different ways. I my, my psychotherapy practice is called My Happy Couple, and I'm located in the Sacramento, California area. So they can visit my website at myhappycouple.com. And then I also have a podcast that is just for women called Her Life Unscripted. And it really is the stories of life for us as women as we are navigating all the things that we thought life was going to be um, in contrast to what it really is and how do we navigate that unscripted journey. Um, And I actually have a women's retreat coming up in September that they can find out more information by visiting herlifeunscripted.com and being able to learn more about the podcast and really um, connecting, especially with the female partners, around their healing journey and just the importance of their part of this process um, separate from the relationship because there's a lot of healing that they do independently that positively impacts the healing that happens within the relationship as well. So I'm sure that you and I are on the same page when we're talking about infidelity and betrayal and it's separate from sexual addiction and partner trauma. Janice Abrams Springs is one of the gurus for... Mm -hmm. learning how to make um, peace with your past and learning how to find the skills to work through infidelity and betrayal. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. And so uh, have you studied at all with her? No, I've I've read some of her work but never studied her as closely um, as some of my colleagues. Yeah, I, um, I have studied with her and Truly, she has two phenomenal books. One has to do with forgiveness, and the other has to do with, you know, how do you get past thing when he's having an affair? How do you get past that? And, and she talks about men and women both having affairs. However, we live in a society where um, women tend to be a little more relationship-oriented and may not be so apt to... Um, become unfaithful, although that's changing. But I really do believe more men than women typically cheat. Um, And that's not meant to blame. It it just seems to be my experience, and I I believe statistics would support that, although it is changing. What do you think? Yeah, I agree that it's definitely changing. I think that the experience of infidelity for men and women is different. I think that, um, like you said, that relational component is um, definitely an, an, an essence that we see within the um, when female partners tend to be unfaithful. But I really do believe it's changing. I would say what I see in my practice is much closer to a 60-40 split than I've ever seen. 
Um, and I think that speaks to many different dynamics. But I definitely, I, I agree with you. I think that it's something that's evolving. Um, and it just, it, it looks different. And I think we're still learning lots about why it looks different, but also recognizing that there is different, um, I guess, there's these inadvertent social acceptanceness, I think, acceptedness, I think, around uh, male infidelity versus female infidelity, which is, you know, I think part of the conversation also is um, what are the messages that men are getting around um, being unfaithful versus women and what happens to, um, you know, the shaming messages that also include if the woman is unfaithful and the messages that she may take that are different than when a man is unfaithful, um, which I feel like is a, you know, a bigger conversation, but also something that I see showing up in the office. Well, yeah. And truly, um, where women may have had more responsibilities to be at home, perhaps they worked on top of it. You know, with the digital age, both men and women are able to be unfaithful so much easier that I believe that that's also increased the infidelity ratio um, for both sexes. And that's where, obviously, I have expertise in sexual addiction, and partner trauma. Have you ever heard of APSATS? Because I do believe it was one of my APSATS um, colleagues that recommended you for the show. She really felt like your work was extremely helpful for partners who had experienced sexual addiction. And so... Yes, Mari Lee, I believe you interviewed her a while back. She always speaks so highly of you. Yes, and vice versa. And so... She is um, incredibly astute in helping addicts and partners to work through this trauma, and she really felt like you had a phenomenal program. And so once again, I would love for you to share the website. I mean, that website is amazingly, well, it's happy, right? I mean, it, it, <laughs> it gives some hope, strength, and recovery. And I'm sure some of my couples that have really – been through the ringer and our listeners may go, gosh, I don't know that we could ever see ourselves as happy. So remind everybody one more time what your website is and how they can get a hold of you. Yes, absolutely. They are welcome to reach me at my my primary website, my psychotherapy practice at myhappycouple.com or also they're always welcome to email me to Anna at myhappycouple.com and you know, I think that um, you know, the my piece of it is really the ownership that we have over our relationship, right? That we are able to create that happy relationship, which, like you said, can feel very, very far off from people, especially when they are healing from sex addiction, relationship trauma, and or, you know, infidelity and betrayal, but that there is a sense of, of hope, like you said, um, which is so integrated within your work also, of um, there is there is a place that they can create hope within their own relationship. And as practitioners, you and I know that sometimes we hold the hope until our couples can see it for themselves, that we can hold that space for them of helping them to know how it can be different until they're able to really walk that path on their own. Oh, absolutely. And I would never tell anybody that the what they've been through is actually going to make them stronger um, because it would feel too cliche. And yet what I do right. know to be true is that it sounds like your podcast and certainly work with clinicians who know how betrayal um, feels 
can, in actuality, remind the client that there is great strength in getting through every day and working through uh, the coupleship and identifying boundaries and assertiveness and all the things you need to right a wrong, you know, all the things you need to end up being stronger as a result. So I'm going to ask you, um, what do you think a new relationship looks like when it's with the partner that injured you? Yeah, you know, I really do believe that when trust has been broken, the relationship has essentially burned to the ground, right? That is the old version. That is what we, we thought we knew to be true. And so as we heal and enter into a new relationship with um, your partner, it's going to look different than what it used to look like. But it can also be insulated in ways that help us to continually turn towards each other, even when we want to turn away. And that really touches back to this idea of vulnerability that you and I were both speaking about, is that that new relationship is one that's governed by a different set of rules one that has established healing through communication. It's it's endured practice vulnerability, and it's been able to really move into what this new normal will look like. And I think an acceptance that the new normal can be really, really beautiful. And like you said, um, you know, those those cliche things, they don't apply, and yet there can be truth in them, is that um, a lot of my couples wouldn't wish what they had gone through on their worst enemy and yet going through that fire together is something that has forever changed them and solidified them together um, within this this new relationship that they're on the path together. Well, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I hear from um, partners especially is, hey, can you guarantee me that he's not going to do this again because I'll tell you what, I'm not going to get hurt again. And, of course, I can't guarantee that. As a matter of fact, I probably could guarantee the opposite, that there's going to be some more pain, as there is in any coupleship. I mean, my husband and I have been married 17 years, and sometimes he he hurts my feelings, sometimes I hurt his. However, betrayal is such a big trauma. That's not just pain. That's trauma. Right. And I can't blame any partner for not wanting to give their all for fear that they're going to be hurt again. So what do you tell partners who who ask you for a guarantee that they won't be hurt again? Yeah, I think that, you know, it is a very common question and one that it sounds like you have the same sense where we want to offer it, but we know that we can't because we are human and, and we are flawed and we injure Um, And so I think really the most important yet hardest thing is really coming to the place to to accept that there is no guarantee, right? There is no guarantee that exists out there as much as we'd really like one. And that part of loving and, and being vulnerable and being in a relationship is also opening ourselves up to the other person and, and that as humans, we injure each other. Um, And it's not because we don't love our partner or that we want to hurt them. It's because we're imperfect and and we do. Um, And and the thing that I really focus on when clients want that guarantee is really it's, it's less about their partner and it's more about them. Because if they don't get the guarantee that they're looking for, then they can give themselves permission to be conditional in the love that they give. And that doesn't create a successful relationship when there are conditions to, well, we'll just wait and see. Um, that doesn't allow us to fully enter back into the relationship. 
Um, and so we don't want to create a dynamic where one partner feels like they're holding themselves back, they're, they're preventing in intimacy, they're holding back vulnerability, um, because the other one just feels like they're going to be abandoned or rejected in any moment. Um, and so really healing in a relationship doesn't mean we're never going to get hurt again, but it does mean that we're really committed to trying our best. Um, and so it's really this acceptance that the guarantee doesn't exist, and we can still learn to feel safe and love again. Oh, absolutely. And so I can really appreciate the fact that you remind them that there are no guarantees, that it's part of life. And I encourage people that have been through significant betrayal to just go very, very slow and to trust what their head tells them about the relationship, what their heart says, and what their gut tells them. And and usually their head may say, I don't know if I can buy this. I'm going to wait and see. I think that's a good choice. Their heart may be saying, I, want, I love this person. I want to believe it, and yet I've been hurt, and I don't want to get hurt again. And then their gut may say, you know, you're in this right now, so you might as well take it slow, pay attention to what he or she has to offer, and do it a day at a time or a minute at a time. You don't have to make a decision for your life. You just have to do it today and see how it feels. Yeah, and getting those three pieces, right, the, the gut, the, the head, and the heart connected again is such an important part of this process. There's a, a, an author who I just absolutely adore, uh, Glennon Doyle Melton, and, you know, she talks about just doing the next right thing, that it's just putting one foot in front of the other, and when betrayal has happened or, or any trauma in our life, you know, she speaks about in a general sense, but I really feel that in our relationship when everything has been turned upside down, all we need to ask of ourselves is just do the next right thing. And, and that is a slow and steady step. Um, it is one that is not fast-paced, and sometimes that can be frustrating. But the healing process is very slow and intentional, and yet it's something that is, is, is very, very beautiful. Um, so I agree that slow pacing is very important. Yes, and so as we begin to end for today, you know, my listeners are avid readers about betrayal and trauma and infidelity. Are there any books or workbooks that you would recommend for our listening audience if they want to continue to work on getting healthy? Yeah, I think being able to, um, after the affair is one that I, I refer a lot of couples to, and also... Um, couplesfix.com is a great website. They've got actually an affair recovery program that's an online-based program that's also a great resource. And I say, you know, be in control of the story. Sometimes when we are healing from betrayal and infidelity, we want to tell everybody because we're in such great pain and really just being intentional about who we tell so that we can make sure it's people that aren't going to tell us what to do or, or point us in their direction, but really allow us to walk in our own direction. And so whether or not that's reaching out to family or friends or a therapist, somebody that, that you can really, really unload that weight of the, the betrayal on so that you don't have to carry it alone anymore um, is just an amazing, amazing part of it. Oh, yeah, very, very good point. So, again, we're talking to Anna Osborne, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist. She's the owner of My Happy Couple. You can go to her website and check out the resources she has to offer. 
and she's the host of Her Life Unscripted. And it's a podcast that works with women to help them to figure out their own burnout and to figure out what they can do to get unstressed out and, you know, to stretch thin women to live more intentionally and more connected in their own lives. So, Anna, thank you for the work that you do with women. It sounds incredible. I can't wait to listen to your podcast. I hope my listening audience does, too. And keep helping couples heal because that really is, I think, the greatest thing that we can do when we're working with human beings is to help our coupleships grow. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Carol, so much for for your time and thank you for your expertise and the work that you do. It's such a value to our community and I'm excited that we got to slow down and connect this evening. Yeah, hope to get to meet you someday. You have a great week. Perfect. Thanks, Carol. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. So again, talking with Anna Osborne, she obviously has given of herself to figure out what it takes to help couples heal. And, um, you know, that's what we're all about on this show. So it looks like we need to end. But as I say to you all, there will only be one of you at all times. So fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. Get honest if you're an addict. Get honest about any relapses, triggers, and fears you have. And if you're a partner, get honest about the vulnerability and the fear that accompanies you as a result of this situation that you didn't ask for and at the same time you're dealing with um, on a day-to-day basis. I'll see you next week for more sex help with Carol the Coach. Make it a good one.